Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 117, Soft Power. First, as always, thanks so much to our latest donators. We've got Bistra Georgieva, Tim French, and Vesko Georgieva. And yeah, I think we've got a few others. I just realized I forgot to put in their names, so I will mention them in the next episode. Now, first, I want to do something a little bit different. Uh, I've never done any kind of advertising on this podcast before, but a listener who I've talked to a little bit over time wanted to kind of put this out. And so I thought it was relevant enough to mention. So This guy's name is Matt Grace. He's a teacher and he's put together a kind of online course about the rise of the Ottoman Empire designed for middle and high school aged kids. I helped him kind of figure out a project where the kids were making podcasts and, you know, gave him some tips on how to do that and listen to some of the results. They were interesting and pretty adorable. (laughs) So 10 year olds doing something like this is a lot of fun. So if you've got kids who need something to do this summer and you think they could learn some history or would enjoy learning history ideally, then check it out. Uh, I'll put a link in the description of this episode. And if you mention the Bulgarian History Podcast, you'll get the first third of it, which is an eight-week section for free. And anyone who signs up for the paid portion, I'll get a little bit of kickback on that. So, you know, let me know what you think uh, about uh, about the course if you check it out and really what you think about, well, this kind of advertising. It's pretty limited, but, you know, I thought I'd throw in something. All right, now let's get right into it. Here's what you're here for. Now, last time, We discussed the aftermath of the Crimean War, and we dove more deeply into the cultural influences the rest of Europe were increasingly having on Bulgarian lands. I know, a big relief for those of you who've kind of waited for less military history. We're we're finally in a time of history where I can talk a lot more about things like culture. And in fact, I recently purchased a whole set of books about things like, you know, the role of tobacco in Bulgarian history and uh, other kind of cultural elements. So I'm going to be reading through those books and trying to incorporate all that research a lot more into the next few seasons. So you can look forward to that. Now, as we talked, right, wealthier and younger Bulgarians were starting to pick up a lot of European fashions and clothing, music, and lifestyles at a pretty rapid pace, while the rural majority was, unsurprisingly, largely untouched by these influences. The result was a growing gap between the two, both in terms of wealth, but also cultural and political ideas. This growing Europeanization was also affecting the Ottomans themselves, as the interactions with foreigners in Constantinople had familiarized the locals with the Europeans just as much. This, combined with the guarantees of Ottoman territorial integrity, meaning the Ottomans could, you know, (laughs) chill out a little without worrying that a European power was going to attack them, allowed the Tanzimat reformers to begin focusing on their work more intensely. Even the sultan was making big changes as he moved out of the Topkapı Palace, where the sultans and the Byzantine emperors before them had always lived, not in the same building, but in the same location, for centuries, to a newly completed and more European Dolmanbache Palace on the Bosphorus. Remember also how the Ottoman finances were strained? Well, (laughs) interestingly enough, this palace cost about 25% of the empire's tax revenue for a single year. So that 
didn't help. But, you know, it's a lovely palace. I've been there. You can visit it. It's very beautiful. But uh, the Ottomans are, they're on a bit of a spending spree here. Now, at the last, at the end of the last episode, I alluded to how Bulgarians would react to the new geopolitical world brought on by the Crimean War. Well, now we're here. Just a month after the Treaty of Paris was signed, in May of 1856, the first major reaction occurred. Now, for the past several years, Bulgarian revolutionaries and general anti-Ottomans were busy trying to use the Crimean War to advance their cause. Now that the war was over, well, it was time for them to return to more direct action against the Ottomans. So, on May 25th, 1856, Ivan Kulin and Dmitry Petrovich began a rebellion in northwestern Bulgaria. Both men had pretty interesting backgrounds. Kulin was a seasoned revolutionary, having participated in the first Serbian uprising, the Menchov uprising, the second Pirot uprising, and the Vidin uprising. I think if he got another one, he gets like a free sandwich or something. Anyways, he had been imprisoned, unsurprisingly, and actually exiled to Izmit, a city on the Anatolian side of the Sea of Marmara near Constantinople. But when the Crimean War broke out, Kulin fled and got to Wallachia and then to Serbia, where he and Petrovic began planning this new uprising before the Crimean War was finished. Most likely, and unsurprisingly, they were planning to you know, have this uprising coincide with the Crimean War, which would make it a lot more effective. But obviously the Austrian intervention, the moving of the war from the Balkans to the Crimean Peninsula, and then the war ending, well, put, put a stop to all that. Now, Petrovich, for his part, was a decorated officer in the Russian army during the Crimean War. Both men also had ties to Serbia and expected the Serbian government to help them. They also thought their armed action would draw the attention of the great powers to Bulgaria. As well, we've seen, it's all pretty optimistic, but possible. When the rebellion began, the rebels attacked Belgradchik, but they were betrayed when Serbia, instead of helping them, informed the Ottomans about their plan. They and their 500 followers were surrounded and militarily crushed by the Ottomans. Petrovic and Kulin escaped to Serbia with about 20 followers. So, well, there's how that went. Uh, again, we've seen time and time again that relying on Serbia to help uh, Bulgarian revolutionaries is a failing strategy. That same month, Rakovsky arrived in Belgrade before moving further north to the Austrian city of Novi Sad, now in Serbia. Now, while the Northwestern Rebellion had begun and was crushed in May, just all in that month, by July and August, yet another uprising was set to begin in Gabrovo in central Bulgaria. This time, it was headed by a man named Nikola Filipsi. The plan was for a small group of rebels to gather in the Lyaskov Monastery before moving on to Gabrovo, where they hoped to gather local support. However, Filipsi was betrayed and captured, leading to his force disbanding. We're seeing a pattern here. Now, clearly the spirit of rebellion in Bulgaria was stronger now, despite the Ottoman victory against the Russians. The remaining months of 1856 saw the first Bulgarian play put out in a newly formed cultural center in Schumann and Georgi Rakovsky publishing yet another pamphlet with the help of a Serbian patron in Novi Sad. Soon, Rakovsky was on the move yet again, traveling to Galetz on the mouth of the Danube in Moldavia, visiting towns in Wallachia along the way. Now remember, 
Galetz is right next to Praila, and the two towns have up to this point hosted many Bulgarian revolutionary activities. They have also served as a meeting point, which is in a good spot because it's near the Russian, Wallachian, Moldavian, and Bulgarian territories. And so people can easily meet and plan activities from all those places. This was particularly important because despite its recent loss, Russia was still acting as a patron of the Bulgarian Enlightenment. In the final days of 1856, the Russian Ministry of Education was actually ordered to help Bulgarians, Serbs, and other South Slavs who came to study in Russia as much as possible with their financial and other needs while there. Later, a secret order was sent to the governors of some regions in Russia, instructing local authorities not to tax and actually to provide stipends to young Slavs who wished to study in Russia. Despite their military losses, Russia was still very clearly determined to exercise her soft power in Europe and saw Slavic nationalism as a prime method. Again, so hard power, if you're not familiar with the terms, is, you know, military might invasions, all that kind of stuff. Soft power is cultural power, people having good feelings towards you, you know, people not wanting to fight you because they like you, that that kind of stuff. I mean, it's a bit more complicated, but that's the basic sense. So Russia's really been shut out of exercising hard power by its loss in the Crimean War, and so now it's shifting its focus to soft power, and obviously that's having a big effect on Bulgaria and the Balkans. Now, the final days of 1856 saw events moving in Constantinople, as the fact that the reform edict issued at the beginning of that year was not being enforced became more and more glaring. In response, the Bulgarians of Constantinople asked towns and municipalities in Bulgaria to write petitions to the Sultan, asking that the terms of the reform edict be enforced. Their representatives were formed into a kind of Bulgarian mini-parliament thing, a representative body, and their plea outlined the main Bulgarian desires on the topic of the church, and they officially asked for the return of an independent Bulgarian church. So despite the fact that you know there were a lot of other parts of that reform edict, the church was still the focus of this particular gathering. Now, as mentioned in previous episodes, the advocates for an independent Bulgarian church faced the question of finding a new great power sponsor that wasn't Russia. Tricky, considering it was the only other orthodox great power. Or whether to simply go it alone without any great power support. Ultimately, they chose the latter, and they decided to send a petition to the Sultan asking for a separate church on behalf of the 6.5 million Bulgarians in the empire. But, for now, that petition bore no fruit. But the revolts of 1856 weren't quite done yet, as Ivan Kulin was attempting to organize yet another revolt from Belgrade. However, it appears that he was persuaded not to by Rokovsky, who firmly believed that the timing was not yet right, which considering how the year's gone, is pretty understandable. From his new base in Novi Sad, Rokovsky also published the first issue of the Bulgarian newspaper Bulgarska Nevnitsa. Its aim was to expose corruption and to educate Bulgarians on issues of justice, civic and religious governance, etc., and to overall guide Bulgarians towards enlightenment. However, just a few months later in October, Rokovsky was arrested by the Austrians in Zemun, just across the river from Belgrade, and turned over to Serbian officials on the order of the Ottoman Sultan. Though it appears that he was then extradited to Wallachia, I'm not really sure why, and well, once again, the Serbian state is acting on behalf of the Ottomans in helping to suppress Bulgarian revolutionary activity. 
The Austrians were also helping because they were still dedicated conservatives who, as we saw with their actions in the Crimean War, were resolved to preserve the status quo in the Balkans for now. Although I couldn't find many details about what happened to Rakowski there, within two months it seems that he was actually out of Wallachia and in Yash in Moldova, where he gave Knyaz Nikola Konak Bogidori, Knyaz of Moldova, a plea to open a Bulgarian printing press in Galetz. Now, I assume Rakowski escaped imprisonment because a few months later that Knyaz received an order from the Sultan to arrest him and send him to Constantinople this time, but instead, Rakowski soon left for Russia via Chisinau, now Kishinov, or Kishinau, two names for the same city, the, the capital of Moldova. Uh, by April, Rakowski arrived in Odessa, settling in the home of a man named Nikolai Mironovich Toshkov, who was an influential Bulgarian there. So again, Rakowski was in, well, he was in Novi Sad, and then just across the river from Belgrade, he was arrested by the Sir, well, by the Austrians, handed over to the Serbs. He was then sent to Wallachia. He then somehow got away and ended up in Moldavia, and then he was ordered to be arrested again and escaped to Russia. Whew. Rakowski is exhausting. There's a lot to cover with that man. Very impressive, though. Also in Russia that year, the budding writer and scholar Lubin Karavelov settled in Moscow. He came to attend the Russian military academy, but he was too old, so he had to sign up for the history-philology faculty at the University of Moscow instead. He will ultimately stay in Moscow for 10 years. During this time, he largely formed his ideas about Bulgarian national revival. Again, all these events, as well as the coming of Russian funding, shows that despite the loss in the recent war, Russia was still determined to exercise its soft power via Bulgaria, and people like Lubin Karavelov show how that policy is going to play out. And we'll hear a lot more about him later because he's a major uh, kind of Bulgarian character of the 19th century. Meanwhile, in the last half of 1857, the Ottoman government ordered the Patriarchate to call a meeting to reform church institutions to conform with the 1856 Reform Edict. So the Ottoman government was trying in some way to implement those reforms. And this, interestingly enough, showed just how conservative the Orthodox Church was at this point, that even the Ottoman government was more progressive than it was and had to push it to implement reforms. Granted, it's important to note that the Ottomans had a lot to gain from these reforms because, well, their empire was in decline and they needed to reform it to keep it alive, while the church had very little to gain from these reforms. It was had a lot of power and it was doing just fine and wanted to preserve the status quo. As we've seen, remember, the patriarchate actually opposed even the Greek independence war, which I still think is pretty interesting. Now, in the final days of that year, representatives of the larger towns and villages from around Turnival also wrote a new plea to the Patriarchate demanding the renewal, removal of the Greek metropolitan neophyte Byzantios, showing the continued dissatisfaction with many of these corrupt Greek church officials. So, unsurprising that at this point, Bulgarians are demanding an independent church and an end to these corrupt Greek church officials' kind of reign of power, and even the Ottoman government is leaning in that direction. But thus far, the Patriarchate is ardently refusing to do very much. Now, as a nicer side note, this year also saw the formation of the first Bulgarian female organization in Lom. But Ottoman policies were the bigger changes happening in 1857. 
That year saw the formation of the Ottoman Ministry of Education, although most educational reforms and efforts in Bulgaria would continue to be grassroots efforts. Still, it shows, again, as we've seen, how the Ottoman government is becoming more traditionally kind of Western and European in its structure and the way it governs the empire. Now, the year also saw the Ottomans introduce a refugee policy following decades of flows of Muslims fleeing the Russians in the Caucasus and a recent much larger influx of Tatars fleeing Crimea after the Crimean War. The policy gave these Muslim refugees six years free of taxation and military service if they settled in Anatolia, or 12 years of those two things if they settled in the Balkans. Despite the nicer deal in the Balkans, about two-thirds of them went to Anatolia, with the remaining one-third obviously going to the Balkans, mostly to Bulgaria, Macedonia, and Thrace. Now, Clearly, it was already evident that these people were not very welcome in the Balkans, as most of them didn't want to go there, and they clearly didn't see much of a future there. Uh, but, you know, we can say that was based a bit on economic, cultural, and national considerations. But, although Bulgaria definitely already had a fairly sizable Muslim population, both, you know, kind of ethnic Bulgarians who had converted to Islam and ethnic Turks and other groups, but this particular migration is also a major source of quite a lot of the Muslims who will be living in Bulgaria in the decades and centuries to come. So it's worth pointing out. And, but, you know, this, this policy did not go over smoothly. The arrival of this one third of these, uh, these large numbers of refugees did not go smoothly. And many of them were attacked. Well, first, many of them attacked local Christian populations in retaliation for the violence they faced by the Russians, which then prompted many Bulgarians to flee to Russia. And here we see a really tragic cycle of violence, where Russians commit violent acts against Muslims in Crimea and the Caucasus, and some of those Muslims then come and commit retaliatory acts against Christians in the Balkans, who are then forced to become refugees themselves. It's a tragic situation and I think kind of shows the result of the, this kind of religious violence and the origin of this kind of violence in the Balkans. Uh, in many cases, it's events like this. And I point that out because obviously in so much of the writing and thinking and discussion of the Balkans, we characterize violent acts like this as being sort of these ancient hatreds and things, but policies and events like this show that there are very clear reasons that these things happen. And I always think that's important to keep in mind that these are people who are responding to things happening, right? These people faced violence where they came, where they came from on the part of Christians, and they wanted to, you know, let that out. They wanted to exert violence in retaliation, not really considering that the people they were enacting this violence again had nothing to do with it. So it's just an interesting way to think about that. Now, Ottoman reforms continued in 1858, when the spirit of the Tanzimat reforms, uh, in the spirit of the Tanzimat reforms, the Ottoman government enacted a new law defining the categories of land, the types of ownership, and the various ways of acquiring, owning, and transferring land rights. Again, this is another example of Ottoman modernization and imitating European legal practices. But all that modernizing couldn't hide the fact that the Ottomans were still drowning in debt that debt that they took on initially during the Crimean War. Now, at this point, the Crimean War ended two years ago, but the Ottomans already did not have the cash to fund their state budget or even cover the interest on the loans. 
As a result, the Ottomans, quote, requested a further loan. The creditors were less accommodating this time, and they were able to force the empire to accept such onerous conditions of interest and discount that it had to pay as much as 60% on this loan alone, a process that continued with depressing regularity in subsequent years, end quote. That was a quote from Misha Glenny's book. So we're beginning to see that cycle. You know, if you're familiar with the, you know, loan sharks or payday lenders, this should look pretty familiar, right? A person is completely unable to make the payments and yet the lenders keep loaning them money, in effect, putting them in a deeper, deeper hole. But for the lenders, well, they benefit in the short term because they keep getting those interest payments and things. But in the long run, they're increasing their risk because, well, there's a risk of default. It doesn't look like the Ottomans will be able to pay this off. But for now, we'll see how this is going to play out. But it's important to note that these are French and British loans, and so the Ottoman government is becoming more indebted to those countries, not just the governments, but private lenders in those countries. So that's, you know, tying the Ottoman government to these powerful business interests. And, you know, we don't have anything specific at this point, but that is definitely going to play a role in the geopolitics of the empire going forward. Misha Glenny went on to explain that, quote, once the Tanjimachitler, the Tanzimat reformers, discovered that they could contract a new foreign loan every time the empire ran out of cash, they found it a very difficult habit to kick. Their suppliers were keen to feed their addiction. The Turkish loan soon developed a reputation as being one endless free lunch for investors. At the time, the British investment market was saturated with capital. Average returns on investments in domestic industry and public utilities stood at between 4 and 5%. The Turkish bonds, backed by the British and French governments, offered a 9 or 10% return. End quote. So, do you see everything I just explained played out there? Uh, this is a, a, a kind of a, I don't want to say a pyramid scheme, but like it's a, it's a dangerous financial bubble. And at this moment, it looks like the Ottoman state is modernizing very fast, but it is modernizing on the foundation of ruinous debt. The Ottoman Empire is building a mansion on a swamp, on a poor foundation. And the results of this addiction to debt will be seen. Now, back to Rakowska in Odessa. In May, Tsar Alexander II issued a decree by which the Odessan Bulgarian organization was recognized officially, collecting donations in the empire for Bulgarian Orthodox churches and schools. Soon, Rokovsky was appointed the overseer of the Cherson Seminary in Odessa. Over the course of that summer, Rokovsky created his first plan for freeing Bulgaria from Ottoman rule. He outlined the idea of organizing a centrally, a kind of a centrally planned revolt, and the plan set out to have secret headquarters and trusted messengers to prepare people and import weapons. To guarantee success, the headquarters should be supported by Russia and France, as well as coordinate with other Balkan countries. The leader of the actual revolt should be a military leader. But for the moment, these are just plans, and I think we can say pretty optimistic ones, considering, well, France and other Balkan countries don't seem terribly likely to support this whole endeavor, and even Russia would have to be very hesitant. Also that summer, the Bulgarian community in Constantinople was moving ahead with long-awaited changes. In June, an assembly was called there of local Bulgarians, which decided to begin building a new Bulgarian church in the city. 
it seemed some progress was finally being made to break the power monopoly of the Orthodox Church as Ilarion Makariopolsky became a bishop, on the condition that he would not ask for an independent exarchate, an independent church for Bulgaria. All this was done with the support of Stefan Bogoridi, who, you'll remember we talked about before, was a kind of wealthy and powerful Bulgarian in Constantinople who had kind of many Ottoman government positions. The Bulgarian assembly also began discussing the idea of advocating for an independent Bulgarian church, though despite the progress being made, its participants ultimately decided to support the patriarchate and not advocate for independence. Now this may sound strange, but remember this assembly is made up of influential Bulgarian citizens, men who had something to lose from a change in the status quo. Considering its widely documented corruption, it's also possible that the patriarchate had some financial role in swaying votes, although that's purely speculation on my part, but I could see it happening. In any case, there's a lot of reasons why we can see this body would decide not to advocate for church independence. But at this point, Russia was also getting more involved in the issue. On December the 13th, the Russian ambassador in Constantinople, Apolinari Botenev, met with Patriarch Kirill to introduce him to the Russian position on the Bulgarian church independence question. The ambassador assured them that Russia will recognize their rights, but that they are against splitting orthodoxy. The ambassador also confirmed to Kirill that the Russian government will support the pleas of Bulgarians for sermons and schools in their language and the appointment of Bulgarian priests and officials. Now, this middle position for Russia really makes a lot of sense. Because, well, Russia was no longer the official protectors of orthodoxy within the Russian Empire, so they needed soft power that they could exercise over the orthodox community even more than before because they no longer had an official degree of power over that community. Therefore, they couldn't fully oppose the patriarchate on the matter of Bulgarian church independence because while that would endear them to the Bulgarians, it would put them in hot water with a much larger orthodox church power. But they still were obviously heavily courting the Bulgarian population with all their educational measures and other support. And so supporting some concessions to the Bulgarians was a nice way to split the difference and win friends in both camps. Now, again, time will tell how well that strategy will work, but that's kind of the thinking behind it. Meanwhile, Frustration with the patriarchate continued as the Bulgarian population in Skopje refused to pay taxes to the Greek church. Russia also continued its efforts to expand its influence as Russian pan-Slavs of the Slavonic Benevolent Society was founded in St. Petersburg this year. So a kind of formal society for you know, pan-Slavic unity and these kinds of movements. Education efforts elsewhere also saw 15 Bulgarian books published, a Bulgarian high school founded in Bograd in Bessarabia, and a man named Vasilevsky becoming a monk at the St. Spas Monastery in Sopot. But these weren't the only religious and educational developments. American Protestant missionaries were just beginning to enter the region, and the Methodist Board Missionary Organization began operating in Bulgaria north of the Balkan Mountains in 1857, while the next year, the non-denominational American Board began missionary operations south of the Balkan Mountains. These missionaries saw their work as a kind of dual role bringing both moral rejuvenation in the form of Protestantism and economic rejuvenation in the form of the Protestant work ethic, the so-called Protestant work ethic. Now, to say both these missions were a bit arrogant is a bit of an understatement, but 
Mary Newberger describes their mission in her book Balkan Smoke, writing, quote, By mid-century, the explicit focus of American and closely associated British Protestant missions to the Ottoman lands was on, quote, nominal Christians or, quote, degenerate churches of Eastern Orthodoxy who seemed most in need of, quote, moral renovation. Concurrent with the rise of British and, more slowly, American commercial and diplomatic interests in the region, missionaries flooded the Ottoman lands with the desire to import morality, education, a work ethic, and, when possible, the Protestant faith. Muslims, Jews, and to a certain extent Greeks proved hostile to such efforts from their inception. Faced with this reality, Western missionaries focused on Bulgarians along with Armenians and Syrian Christians. End quote. So we're, we're beginning to see Protestant missions in Bulgaria. And, you know, personally, my you know, understanding of this region in American history, there's some ironies here because one of the focuses of this missionary work was actually encouraging abstinence from alcohol, which if you look at how much Americans were drinking uh, at this period, the 1830s and 1840s, uh, about the time the first temperance publication was translated and published in Bulgaria by these missionaries, that was 1838, it's all a bit absurd because for reference, the average adult American drank the alcoholic equivalent of a liter of whiskey a week around this historical period. But, you know, missionaries are going to missionary, so what can you do? Still, it's interesting because there was an emerging stereotype of Balkan Christians, including Bulgarians, that they were drunk and lazy. But Bulgarians were gradually taking to the coffee and tobacco culture of the Ottomans, leading one Western traveler to note in a book published in 1918, but about this period, that, quote, Bulgarians are not all drunks as most assume, end quote. A nice observation there. Now, the influence of all this missionary work is only going to grow as our story continues. But for now, we'll just note that these are the early stages of these trends and also just sort of marking greater connections between the United States and Great Britain. Now, to finish off 1858, let's talk a bit about events in Serbia. Remember, the Ottomans were still technically the sovereigns of the Serbian state, and Serbia was certainly acting accordingly. It was at this time ruled by Alexander Karadjordjevic, who had deposed the Obrenovic dynasty 16 years earlier. But Serbia was forced to implement reforms by Britain and France following the Crimean War, forcing Karadjordjevic to convene the Serbian parliament. Now, you can't see me putting little air quotes around parliament, but I am because all of its members were appointed by Karadjordjevic. So not, not very parliament-like, but you know, maybe an assembly, whatever you want to call it. Up to this point, like many parliaments or councils under monarchs, the Serbian parliament only sat when called into session by the prince. But this time, they were determined to change that. Although the prince had appointed them, he was now deeply unpopular with the parliamentarians and with the general population. In what came to be known as the St. Andrew's Day Assembly, both Serbian political parties came together to forge Karadjordjevic to abdicate. In his place, they brought back the now 75-year-old Miloš Obrenović. It seemed his son Prince Mikhail was still too unpopular to be brought back himself because, well, he's the one who had last been deposed. Uh, and, well, yeah, no one really wanted him back. So it also seems possible that the parliament believed that Prince Miloš would give them a better chance at expanding their own power, possibly because of his age. And one of their first actions was to rename themselves the Serbian National Assembly. And well, that's where we're going to end today, with 
Yet another change between the Karadjordovic and Obrenovic dynasties in Serbia, some progress being made on Bulgarian church independence and general Bulgarian church reforms, more failed uprisings and revolutions planned by people like Rokovsky, Russia planning to exert more soft power than ever in both Bulgaria and Constantinople, and the slow march of the Bulgarian National Revival continuing, after as year after year more books are published, schools founded, cultural centers built, and Bulgarians educated. Next time, we'll see the political situation in the region begin to accelerate, as Wallachia and Moldavia seek to change even bigger things, and Serbia attempt to exert more independence, and yet more changes for Ottoman Bulgaria. Don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com, and you can see a link in the description to get timeline, major characters, maps, all kinds of good stuff for this episode. So check it out, and I'll see you in the next one.